What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning best-selling taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, Go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. <laughs> um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Tuesday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. On the line right now, he's actually here. RM Layton of Fish Stripes, the Fish Bites pod, a lot of fish in uh, RM's life. Oh, of course. I mean, that's what it is. Even dolphins as well. Um, unfortunately, all the fish aren't doing very well right now. No. Um, have you seen a marlin up close? What does a marlin look like? I've never actually seen one. I, I just have a very cartoonish um, expectation as to what a marlin actually looks like up close. Um, definitely not like Billy, um, mm. but the former logo, the old logo, which I think most people really like, uh, yes. kind of wish the Marlins would go back to, obviously they've made it clear they never will. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that looks pretty good. No, they, they went from the rainbow M to like, uh, M that looks a little bit like the Brewers M that got a lot of people riled up, but it's blue and they brought back some more blue, but the old teal with that Marlins logo was not far off from what a Marlin actually looks like. You got the super long bill. You got to be careful when you reel it in. Sometimes they'll jump into the boat and they can spear you. So um, it, it does look exactly like that original logo, but yeah, not much like Billy. So they'll never go back. Like they're uh, even the pinstripes and the the teal white. Like because that, that it was so good. I wish the Tampa Bay Rays and the Florida Marlins would get their shit together and go back to both of those because those were just good and different and great. And um, they made progress this year. The Miami Marlins um, uniforms are definitely better. But I, I don't understand why would Derek Jeter not want to bring back pinstripes? It's weird because it's definitely been a top topic of discussion with you know baseball not really being the forefront. <laughs> of what Marlins fans want to talk about right now, unless it's prospect related with how bad the team's been uh, in the bigs, but they did bring it back. They had like a throwback day last year, brought back a similar variation of those jerseys. But at the end of the day, you go to the ballpark of the fans that are there. A lot of them are wearing those old jerseys because it reminds them of 97 and 2003, the two years the Marlins won the world series. It was good times, but also it's just, you look at it, it's just more pleasing to the eye, the teal, over especially, like I said before, those rainbow colors. And the jerseys now are a slight improvement, but at the end of the day, they're still bland. I think those original jerseys are the best, and uh, hopefully hopefully they'll bring them back in some capacity. All right, well, let's talk about the on-field product for the Marlins a little bit because they're just they're the odd team out right now in the NL East. Um, it's kind of a good spot to be in uh, if you're trying to rebuild and go, gut your team. Um, just this division outside the Marlins are all trying to win baseball games, and that can't be said for most divisions in baseball um, in 2019. But uh, the NL East is packed with teams trying to contend, and then you have the Marlins. Um, what is going on with the fish this season? Well, it's funny you mentioned that. It's something I think people don't really pay attention to very often is the timing of the rebuild isn't that bad. It's actually works in the Marlins favor a little bit where, like you mentioned, not a lot of teams have an entire division going all in. And with the Marlins window, as all rebuilds are different, you assume three, four, five years, a lot of those teams that went all in are probably going to have to do a rebuild of their own at that point. So the Marlins might catch the NL East at the right time. But as for what's going on with the Marlins right now, I think it's no secret. They're probably the worst team in the in major league baseball between them and the Orioles but right now it's the, them unequivocally but the minor leagues 
there's some players that are looking pretty good. But if we're going to focus on the MLB right now, the fact of the matter is they're the worst offense in the league. They just cannot score runs. There's It's a revolving door of guys that are getting spot starts. I mean, John Birdie started in center field today for the Marlins. I don't think 85% of baseball fans even know who that is. And it's not to slight John Birdie. It's just that's not a guy that I don't think many Marlins fans expected to be their leadoff hitting center fielder just three, four weeks into the season. So it's definitely dog days right now, the Marlins rebuild. The pitching has been exciting to watch. Obviously, Caleb Smith has been a pleasant surprise. He's looking like a top 20 pitcher in the league right now. He's got an ERA at two. He's striking batters out at an enormous rate. So he's a guy that you look at and you're like, okay, they have their ace. And some of these young pitchers look good. And there's some guys that are developing in the minors. But when you look at the bats, it's just been rough. And it's really tough to watch this team right now, to be frank. They have exactly one player with a WRC plus over 100. And it's Neil Walker, who I believe is 47 years old. Yeah. And Neil Walker is about... And John Birdie, the guy you mentioned, he's 29. It's not even like he's a young guy to get excited about. He's old. Yep. And that's the tough part. It's like, if you're bringing up a guy like Monty Harrison, who I think will be up soon, he's a young athlete, he's still in... I think he already sold 10 bases this month, and we're only at May 14th. Young, exciting power hitter. It's something you can get through the growing pains, right? But like you mentioned, you're looking at a 29-year-old who's a career minor leader, and I'm supposed to watch this game and say, okay, like, let's get excited about this guy. It's it's not really easy to do that because you know, like I mentioned, the revolving door will probably be gone before the season's over, or at least be back in the minor leagues. So that's the hard part of this Marlins rebuild right now is I think a lot of those young guys seem so far away that it's really distant for fans, and it's hard to really see the light at the end of the tunnel. Give me some guys on this roster like Jorge Alfaro. Is it somebody like that who you're like, oh, he could be good? I mean, he's is he someone that eventually can figure it out? Is there anyone, Chad Wallach? I mean, Brian Anderson somehow is only 26 years old. Sterling Castro has been awful, like really bad. Um, Curtis Granderson's getting time. It's, it's a very weird roster. I it just... I'm trying to find just a, a close just example to what the Marlins are like uh, offensively in the majors right now. And I just, I don't know who fits the bill. Is there anyone else that you've seen are like, Oh, you can empathize and understand where they're, where they're at. Or is it really just like a unique thing for the Marlins offense to just be this putrid? You know, I, I think the Marlins, as much as Jeter is going to come out and tell you, I want to win right now. I'm putting the best product on the field. I, I really don't think they're putting much stock into that right now. And as you mentioned, they're getting a lot of the scraps and they're plugging them in right now to make up for the holes that they have with guys that aren't ready. Brian Anderson is a building block for this rebuild. He's got off to a slow start. He has, he's versatile. He can play third. He can play the outfield. He has a rocket for an arm in right as he's had a couple insane throws recently. Uh, he's a guy that, that will be a solid serviceable MLB player and will have a spot in this Marlins lineup. I think for years to come, he's nothing, he's no flashy, all-star type of player, but I think he's a really solid starter. Jorge Alfaro is a guy that was a top 100 prospect, perennial top 100 prospect for for several years with the Rangers, was part of that Cole Hamels trade, I believe, over to, to the Phillies. Had a tough year last year with the Phillies, was able to hit for some power. Strikeouts are obviously a problem, and he, he got off to a really, really good start. He had a BABIP that was just impossible to, to sustain so of course he's naturally hitting a little bit of a slump right now but he's shown the power he showed the cannon for an arm behind the plate and that's a guy that you expect to be the catcher for a while now so you have those two guys that you know are probably going to be part of the rebuild three four years down the road and like i mentioned caleb smith is looking like a certifiable ace in this league potential all-star this year assuming he doesn't hit the wall but when you got guys like starling castro who aren't even hitting at all right now. So he's not even looking at like a trade chip. Neil Walker has pleasantly been hitting the ball decent, but outside of those guys, Lewis Brinson was the guy that was really supposed to break out this year. Uh, he's was the big centerpiece of that Yelich trade, of course, which is being heavily scrutinized now with how well Yelich is doing. And Brinson just hasn't been able to hit, hit the ball at the major league level flat out. I mean, he's had some great minor league seasons, but they sent him down to work on some things. And every time that happens now and every, every, day he spends in the minor leagues just hope gets a little bit more diminished so what's going on what do you notice about brenton why does he struggle so much at hitting at the major league level right now 
you know, and that's that's the million dollar question, right? Because he hit 330 with 30 home run, nearly 30 home runs in the minor leagues several years in double A and then mashed in triple A consecutive years of hitting over 300. Yeah, he struck out a little bit, but you, that, you knew that was part of the thing that you were signing up for when you when you got Lewis Brinson, but you were getting a premier athlete, a premier defender that could hit for power and swipe bases. I mean, that's the whole package. We're talking about a potential five-tool player. But then he gets to the major league level, and he just looks blatantly overmatched. He's cheating. Uh, they get the scouting report on him. They locate that fastball up, and he's just can't even catch up to it. It seems like he's just Simply put, he's overmatched. And once you get overmatched, you start guessing and you start swinging at those curveballs in the dirt and he just looks lost. I think if there's one word you could describe, he just looks lost. And I think until he changes his swing and really redefines his approach, I think he needs to scrap everything and go back to square one. At the end of the day, he has the tools, but it's been really frustrating, especially with seeing how good Christian Yelich has been. Would you have still made that trade? I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but would you have kept Christian Yelich uh, during this rebuild, or do you think um, moving on from him, Real Muto, the rest of those guys, the way they did with the deals they did, um, is there any were there any of those in the moment where you're like, uh, why, why are we doing this? Like, because I think about the Braves and some here where it's like they they went through a bad rebuild, but they also kept Freddie Freeman throughout, and you could still be a bad baseball team and still keep your cornerstones. The Reds did it with Joey Votto. Like, there are still guys you can keep that won't inhibit you from being bad and you can keep them around when um you turn the corner when you fix things and uh they're going to be around the the good veteran clubhouse guys um were there any of those i mean christian yelich is an obvious one but like uh, did you at least at the time go okay i can understand why they're moving on from all of these guys see that that's a great question because I do think having some sort of continuity for the fans through a rebuild is, is, is huge. It definitely gives them someone to still wear their jersey and someone to still look at, okay, the future is bright. We can see it down the road. But at the same time, the Marlins had the 29th ranked farm system in baseball, right? And they had no money. And while they have a core that everyone loves Wait, to talk I, about. Can we pause real quick on the no money thing? Sure. Is that true? Like how much of – that no money stuff from Jeter in this this ownership group do you actually buy? So, I mean, people like to use the argument that there's no salary cap in baseball, but, mm-hmm. you know, you have that soft cap. You do have revenue sharing, but at the end of the day, the Marlins weren't bringing in much money, obviously. They're at the bottom of the league in attendance. Uh, Jeter had just paid $1.2 billion, probably overpaid for a team. Uh, it wasn't Jeter's, obviously Jeter and Sherman and an entire group, but they overpay for this team. And I guess no money is, is, is not the complete accurate choice of words. At the end of the day, they're strapped for over $300 million with John Carlos Stanton. They're going to have to pay Rio Muto down the road a little bit. They have a big contract with D. Gordon, I think over $60 million. Wei-Yin Chen is making $80 million over five years. You have, you're strapped for cash with bad contracts. And at the end of the day, you have bad contracts – and a 29th ranked farm system and a core that never finished over 500 in the John Carlos Stanton era. It's really hard to say, okay, let's spend a little bit more money and try and win with this team. They already made the mistake of trying to go in and trading Chris Paddock for Fernando Rodney. And that clearly didn't work. Then they tried to go about that. I forgot that that's how that trade happened. Oh man. But I mean, the Padres, it's that I don't like that kind of stuff because then you look at, um, the Padres trading Max, uh, Max Reed, like he's an ace. He's going to be, uh, just a great pitcher for the Braves forever and all this kind of stuff. But he was a throw in in the, I think it was the Upton deal years ago. Like, I mean, it's, I just feel like with pitchers, especially young pitchers, it's so, it's so damn hard to figure that stuff out and see who they're going to be and all that kind of stuff. So oh, I, I at least get it a little bit that it sucks, but like. I don't know. I, I give them a little bit more um, a, a benefit of the doubt there on that kind of stuff because it just seems like these pitchers, you just never know. Absolutely. And it's definitely, it's definitely like you said before, hindsight's twenty twenty. but Chris Paddock was the organization's best or second best pitching prospect at the time. Fernando Rodney had unsustainable numbers at 41 years old through the first half. You give him one pass on that one, right? But then you look at Luis Castillo. He was unequivocally the Marlins' best pitching prospect. 
they trade him to the Padres. He's a very good second baseman too. For years oh, he, years. he was a World Series second baseman for the Marlins, and now he's one of the best pitchers in the league for the Reds. And you trade that guy to the Padres, crazy situation where Colin Ray ends up having an undisclosed injury, so they get Luis Castillo back. So you get a second chance to keep this guy, and then they trade him again for Dan Straley, who ended up getting released and now pitches for the Baltimore Orioles. So that's another instance where you're like, what are you doing? You know, he was a, he was a well-respected pitching prospect. And I guess they just didn't like him clearly because they traded him twice. And now you look at him in Cincinnati and he is their undoubtedly their ace. So you look at two of the youngest, best pitchers in the league. And the thing that they have in common is they pitch for the Marlins in the minor leagues. And then you can also mention Domingo Herman with the Yankees, another young guy that is surprising a ton of people and has kept them afloat in their rotation with all the injuries they've dealt with. Another guy that was a Marlin. So there's a common denominator here and it's a little frustrating, but that's all with the old regime. But that leads to my further point, which is they totally, totally dug themselves a massive hole. And then they sold the team and Jeter inherited a mess. Yeah, I just, I, uh, how does, how does the fan base look at this? How long does Jeter have before he has to make uh, a dent? Like how, how does the farm system look right now? How does, um, when does he start spending money again? Like what is the timeline do you think for Derek Jeter in this ownership group? Well, I like to refer to the fan base. It's almost like a Marlins fan civil war we have here because you have half of the fan base that understands the rebuild and knows that it's necessary. Then you have another half of the fan base that says, look at this core we had. We had Christian Yelich. We had Giancarlo Stanton. We had Marcelo Zuna, the best outfield. Dan Lebitard area. Yeah, the Dan Lebitard take uh, that I think – is a little bit short-sighted, right? Because like I mentioned before, but we're talking about a team that never finished above 500. We're talking about a team that had its undoubtedly its best player just disappear off the roster and Jose Fernandez, who, who dies. Of course, there's more to his life than baseball, but at the end of the day, he disappears off your roster. So you lose that guy. And then like Christian Yelich said in interviews after, he said, once that happened, our window shut. You know, you lose... You 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 lose Jose Fernandez. That that was a team that was already very thin on pitching. So now you lose your ace. You have no pitching in your farm system. Your only other pitcher that you spend money on is Wei Yin Chen, who you have eighty million strapped to. So how do you make that team better? And I think that was the the greater question: is we have the worst farm system in the league. We can't make that team better. And so that's a something that Marlins fans are torn fifty fifty on. And you met, you asked me earlier, and I actually want to touch on that question real quick before I talk about the farm system. Do I think the Marlins should have held on to one guy there? I thought Yelich, if they were going to hold on to someone, made the most sense because they did have that long-term contract that was very affordable. But he said he didn't really want to be there, which was understandable. Not everyone wants to sit through a rebuild. But I want to point out something too. If you look at threads from the Brewers trade at the time, most of the Brewers fans were livid with the trade with how much they gave up for Christian Yelich, three top 100 prospects for a guy that never really hit over 320 and never hit over 25 home runs. Uh, Obviously, people thought very highly of him because the Brewers gave up three top 100 prospects and another very solid prospect. The Marlins, things didn't work out for them so far with that trade. Monty Harrison is their probably best prospect right now, and he could still salvage the deal. So could Aizen Diaz and Jordan Yamamoto, who have all looked pretty good. But they make that trade somewhere else, and they're getting three top 100 prospects from almost any team that has that much to give. So I think that's a deal you have to make when you have a farm system that bad. And I can get into the farm system in a minute if there's not anything else you want to talk about before we get there. No, I, I'm curious because the farm system is the biggest thing with this group. Um, and I think just like you said, it, it seems like what they're years away from spending any real kind of money with the contracts and everything else. But if they start hitting on some of these guys, cause you just like, you see some of those pictures of the attendance. And I really do think a lot of it is just who the fuck are these guys? And you have to start getting some guys where you need your next Jose Fernandez. You need your next 
Christian Yelich, you need your next Azuna, whoever, Stanton. Like, there's just, you have to have one of those guys come through the pipeline sooner rather than later. Is, um, is, we talked about that briefly at the top, but, um, how, what is the state of this farm system right now? How would Keith Law describe it? <laughs> well, <laughs> Keith Law, um, he's obviously a pretty critical guy, but I think he would tell you that the farm system is vastly improved, right? I mean, we're talking about one of the worst farm systems turned into a bordering top third system in the league. And I mean, you know, it's hard to justify that when you give up back-to-back MVPs and a couple really solid players. But at the same time, you took a system that was absolutely terrible. And there's some guys to be excited about. And you talk about another guy that needs to be kind of that cultural hero for South Florida and Miami, Victor Victor Mesa, international free agent signing, is a guy that the team's really excited about. He's gotten off to a little bit of a slow start in his first year of pro ball. He's in double A, started right in double A. But he's a toolsy guy, top 100 prospect in a lot of rankings and a lot of different websites. And he has a gold glove potential in the outfield. The only problem is he's, he's not hitting for power right now. I think he has 32 hits and 30 of them are singles. That's a little alarming, but it's early. He's got speed. He's got he's got the raw power. It's not showing in the games. And that's the guy that I expect to bring a lot of fans in the seats as he's a Cuban guy, a lot of Cubans in South Florida and that need that type of Jose Fernandez guy that rallies the troops. I mean, Jose Fernandez, every time he pitched, the Marlins saw a 20% spike in attendance. And that's not a coincidence, really? of course. It's not a coincidence at all. And I know that that doesn't mean the Marlins attendance was great because that probably means and it was only a couple thousand more, but a spike is a spike. And we're taking right. baby steps here when we're talking about a team that has had a fan base that's been betrayed so many times. It's like it's like a, a girl that or a guy that's been cheated on by three straight girlfriends. They're not going to trust the fourth girlfriend very well, are they? And, and that's kind of what's going on here is is even if that fourth girlfriend, who in this case, it's Derek Jeter, has good intentions, it's hard to trust them. So I think the fan base feels very betrayed and it's going to take something like winning to win that fan base's trust back. And uh, for the fans that are sticking by, I think they're going to get through the rebuild and they're enjoying watching these prospects develop. And we're talking about guys. There's a lot of pitchers in that minor league farm system. The issue right now is the bats. We want to talk about Zach Gallen. He's thrown 54 innings in AAA this year, 64 strikeouts in a whip of 0.5. I mean, that's a guy that'll be called up very, very soon. It's not its not lightning in a bottle because we've seen an uptick in velocity from the last year. He was sitting low 90s. Now he's up to touching 96. He said the only difference is he got stung by a B right before spring training, and now they're calling him B-man because he's throwing 96 all of a sudden. So that's an interesting story there. You got Sixto Sanchez, who's a perennial top 25 prospect you got in the Real Muto trade. He's healthy and throwing now. That's a guy that could be an ace and also another guy that fans could get really excited about. He's already hitting triple digits. Then you got first former first rounder Braxton Garrett, who had to miss his first year of pro ball with Tommy John. I personally faced him in, in high school and he struck me out on the nastiest okay. slider I've ever seen in my life. Um, he sits 93 to 95 left-handed arm and he's been fantastic so far. And he's a guy that'll probably end up sneaking his way into the top 100 then you have Jordan Holloway, another guy off of surgery that's throwing 95 to 97 and striking more than a one batter out per inning. So there's a lot of guys that are just really surprising or at least live, finally living up to their potential and look really good and can crack some top 100 lists. So the Marlins don't even have to make trades or make acquisitions to have their farm system, quote unquote, improve among the rankings because some of these guys that were overlooked in the past – are starting to look like legit prospects. That was killer. You just, you went for it there. Like if anyone ever had any questions about the farm system in Miami, they no longer have any more questions about the farm system in Miami. Thanks to that. That was, <laughs> that was killer. Um, last thing. And then, uh, well actually no, this is a two parter. So uh, the Jeter and Jose Fernandez stuff, uh, reminded me of a piece of red, couple days ago on the marlins basically uh, teaching spanish all across the front office the teams and like making that a requirement um i i think it's great 
but uh, also, just do you know anything about that? Good idea. Has this been something been in the works for a while? Should we expect uh, other teams to follow suit um, as the game continues to grow globally? Um, what did you make of Jeter making that kind of that uh, that institutional change? That was one of the things that he really wanted to implement right when he uh, became the CEO of this team, and I like it. I really like it because you have these players coming from all these different countries and they it's hard right a lot of them have translators a lot of them uh, are unable to answer a lot of questions and it's scary enough to be coming to the united states and uh trying to understand everything that's going on in this new country and then you're getting interviewed and you have fans you have cameras in your face and they're not even speaking your language so i think being able to have that connection with teammates is really important and, and something Jeter has emphasized is culture, right? He wants to distance himself from that toxic ownership in the past, that Jeffrey Loria, David Sampson ownership. And I think they're really focusing on distancing themselves from that. And I think they want to implement their own little new cultures within the organization. And I think having a tightly knit group and having some sort of continuity within the organization is a good thing. And I think having some structure is something that the team hasn't really had in the past. And there's nothing wrong with having players be able to communicate better in any capacity. So I'm all for it. And I think it's something that will start to rub off on other teams as, as players get traded and say, hey, in Miami, a lot of my – Brian Anderson spoke pretty good Spanish and I could talk to him and, and I felt comfortable there. And I think that's something that could end up spreading its way through the league. Yeah, I think it's it's great. Um, that's probably the best Marlin story um, of the year. I think we can say. Uh, last thing on the Marlins, we'll move on. Uh, the new stadium changes. Good, bad. You like it? No more clown show in center field. Uh, what do you What do you make of the the subtle, I guess, changes to the the stadium? I like it. I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that every single thing Derek Jeter has done has been good. I think he's had a lot of growing pains. I think he's made some mistakes. I think he's realized that a guy his whole life that's been really, really revered by the general public uh, is now being chastised a little bit just because it comes with the territory. I think it's something that he's learned pretty quickly. So he's listened to the fans, which I think is really important now because he had a few quotes here and there that people didn't like, and he, he was held accountable for it. So now I think he's made it a point to listen to the fans. And a lot of the things that the fans said is they don't feel like the ballpark uh, feels like a major league baseball game. And I think a lot of that had to do with the circus in center field. It had to do with the lime green walls. I think it had to do with the eating options. There was a lot of components that went into it that didn't really uh, touch into Miami, right? If you're trying to bring in Miami fans, which he said is, was his focus, which upset some people from Fort Lauderdale and, and Palm beach. But at the end of the day, the stadium is in Miami. You got to reach the culture, right? We're talking about players and having players from that culture. How about having restaurants, local restaurants that are in the stadium? Some that's something they added. Uh, the R. Coloris thing with having and having a band in right field that plays. And I I think they're really trying to cater towards the fan and the local fan and the Miami fan. And I think while it's you're not going to see instant results with that obviously it's going to take winning i think it's something that'll keep fans coming back once the team is good and also i think just having blue walls instead of lime green is is a huge win getting rid of that sculpture is a huge win and just making some of those little adjustments to a stadium that really is new it's 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 new and it should be more appreciated but it's not because it had all of those little weird quirky things within it and it just kind of took away from the fact that it's a really nice retractable roof with panels that open in a nice ballpark, not in the best area, but at the end of the day, you're still in Miami and you have a view of the skyline. So I like everything that they've done with the stadium so far. All right. Who should trade for Madison Bumgarner? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there's a few teams that can trade for him. First and foremost, I want to point out that he's not the Madison Bumgarner he was when he was pitching in the World Series, right? I think we both agree on that. But he's still a good arm. I mean, he did fall off that dirt bike, so he's still, I think, slowly getting 100% from that because mm-hmm. I still don't think he's looked the same since he sprained that AC joint. But I think 
one of the sleeper teams throughout the league right now is the Twins, right? The Twins are one of the best teams in the American League. They're in first place in a division that's not that good. That division looks pretty weak. It looks very winnable, especially with the Indians not looking great. And if they show that they can win for another month or so now, I think they need to go get an arm. The offense looks good. You got Jose Barrios at the top of the rotation. Pair another really good, experienced lefty with him. And you're looking at a team that could end up being a legitimate playoff team out of, out of the AL Central. Another team, of course, would be the Padres. If the Padres start winning a little bit more, they get Fernando Tatis Jr. back, and Hosmer starts hitting the ball a little bit, that's a team that's pretty scary. We talked about Chris Paddock. He's one of the best young pitchers in the league. They want to win now. They made it clear by signing Machado. It's an interdivision trade, so that's something that is a little hearsay and a little bit unsure with how teams handle that. But I think the Giants are so far from competing, they, don't, they won't really care. So ultimately, the Padres have so many prospects that it wouldn't even, they wouldn't even feel it if they gave up a top 100 prospect for Madison Bumgarner. So I think they're a great candidate. And last but not least, I think the Brewers are a great fit. I mean, the Brewers obviously depleted a lot of the farm system when they went after uh, Christian Yelich. But you look at that offense, it's one of the best in the game. It's, it's in, undeniably one of the best in the game. But you look at that rotation, and it does not look like a playoff rotation. They only have one left-handed pitcher in that rotation, and it's Gio Gonzalez, who they who was in the minor leagues earlier this year, who was signed to a minor league deal. He's looked pretty good. He's looked very good, actually, in his first couple outings. But assuming he doesn't hit the wall, even the four other guys in that rotation are, are average to slightly above average. So if Gio hits that wall, they need a left-handed pitcher. It makes sense, and that's a guy that's experienced and can take the Brewers to that next level instead of getting knocked out in the divisional rounds or the second round of, of the playoffs. Yeah, those teams make sense. Um, for me, like the first things I wrote down, I was thinking about obviously like the Madison Bumgarner to the Braves stuff. It's been going on for like a year and a half, and um, it would require uh, the Braves giving up some of these young pitching prospects that. Uh, they probably would not like to like Bryce Wilson, probably Newcomb, um, just, but that'd be a blessing in disguise getting just finally moving on from that and that up and down situation there. But, um, I, I, they make a lot of sense to me because they, I don't know if you know this or not, but they've had like 73 pitchers start for them this year. There's been like by basically throwing a lot of different guys out there, they stumbled on Soroka and, and freed. And it's just like, okay, we got two guys now, but you still have Tehran in there. Gausman, I, I trust uh, at least for another season, but he'll be gone soon. And then it's just like, I, I don't know. Do we believe in Colby Allard? Do we believe that they're going to hit on every single young starter? And I just don't. So it's like, if you think you've struck gold in Soroka and freed, which I think they have, they just be like, okay, we got two. We got two young controllable arms. Um, pray to God they don't just blow their arm out in the next couple of years and just go out and get a couple of veterans. Go out and get Bumgarner now and just figure it out because I think the Kimbrel stuff is, is gone. And it, I, I think signing a closer at this point uh, after not playing, we, we know how this goes. And I think that's a bad thing. And their bullpen is getting better. Luke Jackson looks great, but... Um, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, but also the angels who just don't have the, the prospect capital to do it. But that's, if you look at just that rotation and with them and there's somebody we're going to talk about later, they also jump out to me where it's like, man, he'd be good there just to give them that playoff push to help Mike Trout get back to the postseason. to, um, I mean, with Shohei Otani not being able to pitch and you have Matt Harvey in that rotation, like that rotation's insanely like, I, I just, I don't know how they're surviving, but they are. And I think I wish they had uh, a better farm system, but Billy Epler obviously hasn't, he's, he's improved it in the last couple of years, but it's just not probably not good enough to get a top of the line starter in Bumgarner. But then again, what do we think his trade value is? Like you said, he slipped a little bit. I mean, he's FIP is still in the threes and he's still uh, a very good starter. He's healthy right now. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's interesting what his trade value actually is. And we'll find out um, this summer most likely, but it is, it is fascinating to, to see how this is all going and um, where it makes the most sense because uh, obviously the, the funny no trade list was like all the good teams, but um, I don't know. I, I don't know what his value is. I think he's a difficult 
starting pitcher to figure out, okay, what is Madison Bumgarner's actual value at this point in his career? And how much are we willing to give up for somebody who can leave very soon after? And that's the big thing is we've seen in the past where left-handed starting pitchers just completely get overpaid for. And it's something that you often see teams paying for the name rather than what he's actually doing right now. And I'm not saying Madison Bumgarner isn't still Madison Bumgarner, but he's definitely not the World Series Giants Madison Bumgarner. And that's something that I think teams are going to recognize. And I think he still commands, obviously, a top 100 prospect. But I don't think he gets that mega package that the Giants are probably going to ask for. Uh, but the Braves, I have written down as the extra team. And I, I was going to mention them, but with the depth of pitching they have, I feel like they're going to inquire. But this asking price will just be too steep. And I don't see them wanting to meet it. Especially because I'm high on Tuki Toussaint. And I think I am he's too. another young guy that could be really good. And you mentioned Newcomb. You mentioned some of these other guys. I think they can put together five that'll make it just good enough to not justify giving up a legitimate prospect for Madison Baumgartner. But you never know with how competitive the NL East is. Some teams may hit the panic button and go all in. So you never know. But like you mentioned, I think the Braves, well, first of all, they're only one game over 500. So if they don't, if they don't start to improve a little bit, then it might be a moot point. But if they're in the contention there, I just don't see them meeting that asking price, which I assume is going to be pretty high unless the market drives it down. It's Ian Anderson, Tuki Toussaint, Kyle Wright, Colby Allard. I mean, you go up and down this list. It's just too many guys. I mean, Bryce Wilson, they're not hitting on all these guys. It's just not happening. Teams don't just hit on nine starting pitchers. Like, you're not going to be in a Met situation with Syndergaard friends. Like, I, I just think at some point you have to cash in on a couple of them. Be like, which ones do we not believe in the the most? Pick two and move on. I, I think that's, I don't think that's a crazy thing. I mean, you won 90 games last year and you're in a, one of the toughest divisional fights in baseball. Like I it just, I don't know how you don't at least start cashing in some of this prospect capital. You, you have to, at some point, I mean, the Red Sox did it. The Yankees did it. The reason the Yankees and the Red Sox had all this, uh, like they, the reason they were in the world series and the reason that they were so dominant in the last couple of years in the playoffs is that they cashed in on those prospects. They developed well and they sold high on a lot of these guys. And now the Red Sox, their farm system is not as deep as it was a couple of years ago, but um, they also knew that you're just not going to hit on everybody. You have to have a balance between the Mookie Betts and the Chris Sales. You have to have a balance between the John Carlos Stantons and um, the Anduars and uh, the Gliber Torres and everything else. Like there's, it's, it's a fine line figuring out how much veteran guys you want to bring in versus how much you want to build around your young pieces and belief in your developing talent and everything else. But I think too many of these front offices just believe that they're, their development is perfect and that they're going to hit on all these guys. So they, they hoard all these young guys and then um, expect them all to hit. And I, I just, I think it's foolish. And I think we should, we've gone too far the other way where teams are now too um, hesitant to deal some of their young arms, especially young arms, just because it feels like that's, there's just so many good young arms and there's not, then there's a lot more where it's like, Oh God, Lewis Brinson failed. Buxton failed and all these like hitters that were just prize prospects that are uh, Mosiak in uh, Philadelphia. And I mean, I, there's just a lot of horror stories of these hitters who are game changers versus uh, the starting pitchers that it seems like you can find anywhere and just redevelop and all that kind of stuff. I, maybe that's not a fair generalization, but that's, that's where I'm at with a lot of these front offices and the Braves, especially. No, it's actually really funny. You make that point. Cause I got into an argument um, on Twitter with, with Joe Frisaro, the MarlinsMLB.com beat writer, he he responded to one of – I had tweeted that Caleb Smith could have some interesting trade value come trade deadline. Not meaning that that means the Marlins should trade him, but I was just saying it might be worth seeing what they can get. And Joe saw my tweet and said I was crazy. And we ended up going back and forth, and it's something he actually still talks about now and still is kind of mad about. But I love Joe. He's, he's a great guy. But he uh, – He's got his opinions, and he really thinks it makes no sense to trade Caleb Smith. And I, I agree to an extent because, like he mentioned, you're only getting a number, meaning you're getting the number 50 prospect, 60 prospect, and they're just a number. 
and how many of those numbers don't work out. You have a sure thing here with Caleb Smith and a team that's had no continuity. So it's one of those things where it makes sense sometimes to just give up those numbers because of how unsure some of them are. And, and that turned into a huge Marlins Twitter debate about whether it's worth kicking the tires, tires on Caleb Smith. So I, I, that's the thing I was saying to you too, is, is I guess you're right. There's, there's two sides to the argument there where the Braves have a lot of prospects and they could put five pitchers together, but also they have a lot of prospects, so they could probably afford to give a couple up. So it's going to be interesting to see which direction they decide to go there. I think they're going to go the cheap route and expect all these guys to hit. And then we'll just see on the ticker this summer, <sighs> Colby Allard, Tommy John, Tuki Toussaint, still weirdly in and out of the bullpen in the starting rotation, finding a place for these guys. It just, it's going to drive me nuts. I, I do know that for certain. <laughs> I, I just, I know it's going to drive me insane that they're just going to hoard all these guys and hope that they all can find their way in their rotation and just pencil them in. Oh, Galsman's gone. Well, let's just put in Allard. Let's put in Ian Anderson. Like, I, it drives me nuts. Um, I think it's silly. Um, Hunter Pence. Also being good at baseball again, I think is quite silly, but he's 36 and it looked like it was over in San Francisco, but um, there's a really good piece in fan graphs this week um, outlining his subtle changes. Because if you watch the clips of the way he, he had a single um, for the Giants last year versus uh, the Rangers this year, it looks in real time, basically the same thing, but um, the way he dives in to um their stance and the way he, his bat position is his shoulders all that kind of stuff you're like it's amazing how just granular you can get with baseball stuff where it's like that little thing can be the difference between you still being a professional baseball player and out of the league it, it's it's wild to me it's amazing how much baseball is literally a game of inches and millimeters even and that's the crazy thing is it's all about adjustments. That's what baseball is all about. And Pence is a guy that always relied on his athleticism. It's no secret that he has a very unusual swing. He throws weird. He fields weird. He takes practice swings weird. He does everything weird. But that's always been his staple. So it's kind of hard. It's like if you if that guy hits hits the wall, how do you tell the guy that hits weird to that? But it always worked for him to to adjust. So he found a way to almost like a happy medium, right? Where he makes some adjustment. He's not changing what worked for him his entire career, but he's making those subtle adjustments. And I think guys like Hunter Pence, where you rely on your athleticism, your entire career, you kind of hit that wall in the mid thirties and some of them can never adjust. And that's why you see those, a lot of those athletic players fall out of the league pretty quickly. And Hunter Pence made those slight adjustments in his swing, slight adjustments in his stance maybe to account for his bat not being as fast anymore, maybe to account for the fact that he can't get away with as much movement in this swing. But whatever it is, the pop off of the bat looks like the Hunter Pence that played for the Astros and the Hunter Pence that played for the Giants. And you look at it when he has a, a slugging percentage over 600, he's already got seven bombs, and he, he looks like the old Hunter Pence. So I think those adjustments clearly are working for him in at the end of the day, like we said, it's a game of inches and guys like him and able to, to be able to stay in the league, you, you got to keep making slight movements to, to how you approach the game. I love this bit in it where it says um, to make these changes, Pence worked with Doug Latta this offseason, who famously helped revive the careers of both Marlon Bird, who I forgot had that late career thing, and then mm -hmm. Justin Turner, who was like the king of the revisionist um, career yeah. uh, arc. And then uh, I think Sun Moon Kim uh, talked to him in March. Like, and, they e and he even played winter ball in the Dominican Republic. So he like went above and beyond and like really made a concerted effort. But I just love these little things where it's like, oh, he found the right guy to work with him. Why, why is every veteran who's falling off a cliff not calling uh, Doug Latta? Like he might be the the witch doctor that you need to to uh, elongate your professional career. I I thought little things like that is interesting. Where it's like, oh, he worked with this guy and he fixed everything. Got it. And the pretty funny thing about that, that's funny you point that out because both Justin Turner and Marlon Bird had pretty unusual stances and unusual swings. Yeah. So <laughs> it's funny that he's able to work with all different kinds of hitters too. It's pretty impressive. Um, we're about to wrap up here, but, um, the angels, they're coming back. They're a game under 500 right now. Um, the, the Mariners have fallen off a cliff. The athletics are not having the same kind of year they did a year ago. They they've dealt with some injury stuff and just other issues. Um, the Rangers, who knows, 
they're hard to figure out. But um, do you believe in the Angels' resurgence um, and that this could be the year that Mike Trout gets back to the playoffs? What are you seeing here? Or is it more of like a Seattle Mariners start to the season mirage where we're like, oh, the Mariners, and then it's it's gone, um, like the whole South Park thing. But um, what do you see with this Angels roster and this team and what they can actually do over the course of a full season? So I don't really believe in the Angels as a team themselves, but I believe that they could sneak their way into the playoffs because of how much I don't believe in their division. Like you mentioned, the division is not good. So I think they could sneak their way into the playoffs. But when you look at that team, I'm just not sold on them whatsoever. You, you look at their top three pitchers that have thrown the three, mo- the three pitchers that have thrown the most innings this year are Matt Harvey, Trevor Cahill, and Tyrus Gags, who combined for an ERA over six. So when your three pitchers that have thrown the most innings this year combined for an ERA over six and a whip in the mid ones, you're wondering how they're even close to 500 right now as it is. Right. So that's one thing. And then you're like, okay, well, at least they've got a pretty good offense, right? Well, yeah, they, they do. You know, you have the best hitter in baseball and Mike Trout. You have Andrelton Simmons, who is with the Braves was, you know, a, a total glove first guy, but has turned into a legitimate bat and, and a 300 hitter. So that's another guy that can hit the ball. But then you got the anchor of all anchors and Albert Pujols, who struggles to have a war that's not negative. And hey, he has a 102 WRC plus right now. He's surviving. He's barely surviving. And that's like the best way to put it. He's like holding on to a thread. And yes, he's breaking these records, but records don't win ball games. And I love Albert Pujols. I think he's one of the best right-handed hitters this game has ever seen. But he really is holding the Angels back. And it's hard when you have a guy like that that I think once we get to the midway point of the season is his bat's going to start literally going backwards if he swings any slower. So it's one of those things that he's another guy that struggles. The Angels do get Andrew Heaney back, and it's huge to see how he pitches for them when he comes back because that's going to be a major, major, major part of their rotation. But when you look at the lineup, it's like Tommy LaStella. You're starting Tommy LaStella. There's some of these guys that you're just like, how can you win (laughs) ballgames? I know, I know. He's hitting, and, and the team as a whole is not striking out. So that's what's working out for them right now. But I just don't think I could put stock into Tommy Lastella hitting well the entire year and banking on him being one of the main bats in my offense. Yeah, I um, I don't know. I just want Mike Trout in the playoffs. So I want them to do something. I want them to get Madison by Warner. You know what I want? Like They probably don't have the capital, so just take in Zach Greinke. Just take him in. Just take the pay for everything. You're the Angels. You're Artie Moreno. Do it. Just take in some bad starting pitching contracts that um, just because you don't have the prospect capital and you need you need arms. Bring him back. That's what I want. I, I, I agree. And they could probably make it with their bats if, if they get some arms. But I just so much of what I'm looking at when you look at that lineup seems unsustainable, right? Tommy Lestello with 10 home runs. You have... Bryce Goodwin hitting 294 with four home runs. I, I just, I just don't see it happening. But you never know. You never know. Like Kevin Smith, their catcher, has been hitting kind of now in in yeah. games. Like I just don't know. But then maybe again, Mike Miner. Yeah, you could say the other way though, and you could say maybe Justin Borrell will hit a little better. Uh, he can't hit any worse. Maybe Zach Cozart will hit a little better. I mean, he was good before, so. I guess you can look at it both ways, but I think the only way the Angels get into the playoffs is if they back in, which is still very possible. It doesn't help that the AL East is figuring everything out, that the Red Sox are back, the Yankees are good, and the Rays are just one of the best teams in baseball. That doesn't help their case. No. Because if they don't win the division, I it just it, the Astros are winning that division, so them they really just need that like they they looked at the standings the start of the year where it's like oh um the red Sox off to a terrible start injury issues the bullpen sucks who knows um this is not good it's very rare for teams who started the way the red Sox did to make the playoffs i remember reading that piece and people have already forgotten because the red Sox have figured stuff out but they that bad start matters um every game matters and they might go on another slippage and who knows but uh 
yeah, I think it's going to be tough. They just have to get creative at some point. They have to just, I mean, Billy Epler, I think, has done a very good job with this group, but they just they need more, and he's got to be creative in a bad situation. Um, but either way, it's going to be fun to watch. RM, this has been a great debut for you on this podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. This was This was good. Yeah, I'm glad you reached out. I had a good time talking baseball. I can go at it with you anytime about the MLB. We can follow up on some of this Angel stuff in the future and see where they end up. Yeah, you'll definitely be back on. You've earned your keep. Um, we can read <laughs> you at fishstripes.com. We can listen to you on the Fish Bites pod. Is there anything coming out this week that we need to check out from you? Um, we are doing several minor league interviews. We did one with Monty Harrison, one of the big part, uh, pieces of that. Yeah, which Trado mentioned before, we're working on a couple other major prospect interviews and potentially a broadcaster or two of the Marlins. So uh, be on the lookout for a couple high-profile interviews in the future. All right. Thanks so much, man, and talk to you soon. Much appreciated. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I uh, just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate it if you could take a second and leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Thank you for your support and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.